Hello, and welcome to The X-Ray. I'm Fernando Espuelas. First, let me explain what we're doing here. There are a lot of great podcasts, and there's some really great political podcasts, but we're doing something different. We're taking a different road. We're taking a fresh look at our political system. Introducing The X-Ray, a new political podcast about political power. Who wants it, who wills it, and why? A penetrating analysis of the biggest issues facing American politics. Interviews with power players, conversations with politicos, experts, and national journalists. And a special segment called X-Ray Vision, a fun exploration of the real person behind the political title. I'm your host, Fernando Espuelas, and I hope you'll join me every week on The X-Ray. For more information, check out thexray.org, and don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. The X-Ray is a project of Issue One. I'm Weston Womp, and this is Swamp Stories, presented by Issue One. I firmly believe the Republicans would be in the majority in the Senate if it hadn't been for the voter suppression efforts of the Stop the Steal movement. There is no better way to make sure that your voters don't vote than to tell them that their vote doesn't matter. Like that is just profoundly stupid and and suicidal and self-destructive. In my view, anything we can do to reduce institutional accelerationism will be a positive because every single incentive is leading to maximizing, you know, the pursuit of power in ways that I think are, are bad for the country. Uh, and, and realistically, even bad for the party that's doing it. But if you have a zero-sum mentality of our politics and of our country, uh, you will maximize. Even if you stand to lose, if the other side loses more, you know, that's a net gain for you. Because if the system is incapable of being changed from within, then the change comes from without. And that's where you get political violence. That's where you get threats and coercion as a way of doing business. Um, it, it is a very dark path that we are you know, going down right now. In his first year as a member of Congress, U.S. Army veteran Peter Meyer has not shied away from positions that put him in a slim minority of the Republican Party, among them voting to impeach President Donald Trump and voting to establish a January 6th commission to investigate the attacks on the U.S. Capitol. This has made him one of the most noteworthy freshman members of Congress in recent memory and one who turned 33 years old just days after being sworn in early last year. Near the end of his freshman term in Congress, Meyer spoke with me about why he ran in the first place, what he's learned while being a member of Congress, and how we can move forward together in an era of vicious partisanship. This is episode 35, a conversation with Michigan Congressman Peter Meyer. Congressman, thanks for joining us for a Conversations episode of Swamp Stories. You've been one of the more consequential freshman members of Congress that I can remember, and so I'm honored that you join us. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, let's start here. You've lived an interesting life. You and I are about the same age. You served in the Army. You come from a prominent family in your region of the country. Uh, You did work for an NGO. Why did you decide to enter politics? You know, I spent about three years between Iraq and Afghanistan. um, And I also spent time 
testifying uh, and, and working to advocate for uh, veteran education. And so, you know, I had a little bit of, you know, I came at politics from a, a policy standpoint uh, and very much appreciating that what the government does and what the government doesn't do, that lives hang in the balance and that we frankly need to have folks in office who understand that reality. Uh, and, you know, I'm on the, the younger side of the house. I'm 33. And a lot of the decisions and a lot of the actions taking place in D.C. seem to be optimizing, you know, short-term self-interest at the expense of long-term governance. And as somebody who hopes to be, you know, in this country and on this earth for perhaps another half century, uh, I want to make sure that we are, we're not mortgaging our future. So, but the combination of making sure that folks appreciate the consequences of, of government policies because they lived it and they've seen the both the intended, uh, the unintended, and the unappreciated consequences, and also making sure that what we have going, uh, we make it as good as we can uh, and, and make it as sustainable in the long term as humanly possible, uh, despite mounting political incentives to do anything but. When I was in my mid-late 20s, I nearly got elected to Congress myself. And so I've got a bit of a unique perspective on how dysfunctional Washington seems to me because I'm now a father of four and frankly don't regret that I lost and that my life is in Tennessee. Can you talk about what surprised you in terms of having the opportunity to serve in Congress? Just how broken is it from the outside? Some of my friends who serve in Congress seem discouraged as often as they're encouraged about what you can get done as a solitary member of Congress these days. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it it's it's bleak, right? I mean, there are, there are plenty of, of good people out here. Uh, and then there are, and, and frankly, folks who retain their goodness despite uh, institutional and cultural incentives to abandon it. You know, the, the path of least resistance uh, is the path that breeds the politics that everybody collectively is frustrated by and hates. I retain a sense of optimism. Uh, if, if I sound defeated right now, that's mostly because of the head cold I'm still going through than, than anything else. Uh, but it's, it's very, it is a lot easier to do the wrong thing. Uh, it is a lot easier to go on cable news and to throw bombs than it is to sit and do the unsexy work of oversight or to really dive deep in the legislation. And the reality is that uh, the voters right now tend to reward the bomb throwers rather than rewarding the serious legislators. It's a lot easier to sit there and say, this isn't good enough than to have to argue for why you did the way that you, or you voted the way that you did or that the bill that you put forward you know, was, was good, but not perfect, but you were not going to let the perfect to the end be the good. You know, I mean, it's a lot easier to criticize than it is to defend. It's a lot easier uh, to, you know, shirk responsibility than to live up to it. So that is a very much a bipartisan affliction that is very much, you know, has a generational component. And I think the, the people matter, the process matters, uh, and the incentives matter. And, and right now, you know, there's, there's not a lot of optimism in any of those categories, but I view that as a challenge to overcome. It's, it's very tempting to search for a silver bullet. And there are folks who think, well, you reform campaign finance, everything else will fix itself. Well, you reform ballot access, everything else will fix itself. 
realistically, it's going to take all of it, right? And in, in, in far more. And there are going to be some things that are going to be driven by policy changes, some things driven by institutional reform, uh, and, and frankly, some things that will just require a long-term commitment to, you know, improving our, our culture and improving how we view and conceptualize what the government does and, and what we expect of it. There is no silver bullet, but we've talked to a couple of members on the Republican side on this podcast who've detailed in their first term or first two terms in Congress process areas that need improvement. Uh, I think about Congressman Timmons from South Carolina, who is the vice chair of the Select Committee on Modernization. He dove headlong as a former state senator into addressing the schedule. Congressman Gallagher from Wisconsin has a lot of thoughts from money and politics to uh, he and I have spoken about his uh, belief that the committee structure should change. While there are no silver bullets, are there some process changes that you'd love to see that you, you may even think changes that could be pursued across party lines? Um, yes. Uh, I mean, I think one of the fundamental things that we I've been working on, right? If I, if I, if I think, you know, 40,000 foot, you know, what are some of the holistic problems with our government? You know, it's that number one power has flowed from more accountable bodies to less accountable bodies, right? From the legislature to the executive and then even within the executive to the administrative state. Uh, it makes it incredibly challenging to make rules or laws responsive. It makes it really easy you know, for, for bad things to persist. So you have that component, then you also have just the, the broader trend of, of things flowing from city responsibility to state responsibility, state responsibility to federal responsibility, the centralization, federalization, and then executivization of everything. So right now, I mean, we're, we're, we have a bill that we dropped um, in the fall, uh, the National Security Reforms and Accountability Act, that when it comes to war powers, when it comes to arms export, when it comes to emergency powers, um, seeks to correct the imbalance we have today where the executive kind of does whatever they want, bring a lot of that back you know, into the legislative purview as the founders intended. Not to tie you know, a president's hands, but to say, you know, the president will need to respond in an emergency context. But once it shifts from that emergency moment, um, you know, Congress should ratify it. You know, we have a separation of powers. We have an, a system of checks and balances for a reason. That's one area. You know, when it comes to how the body itself functions, though, I mean, I, I know some who will bemoan, you know, the lack of, of regular order and, and want to return to regular order. Uh, one of the challenges is we haven't had regular order for so long that what we are right now becomes the regular order. Um, you know, the lack of floor amendments, the, you know, e even the weakening of, um, of committee chairs respective to party leadership. I know enough to be slightly dangerous there, <laughs> but I don't, you know, I don't have experience in the, in the counterfactual and, and being in the minority. Um, I even have less insight to how the body as a whole governs. I focus on reforming who who is running? What do they need to do? How can you incentivize good people to to go forward? And how do you frankly make it harder for folks who are are cancerous to the body politic, you know, to survive rather than right now, you know, they they are thriving off of continuing to mutate, you know, the the cells that that we depend on. Let's discuss the continuing issue on our side of the aisle, the Republican side of the aisle, 
that persisting in circles, I live in Tennessee, certainly um, in Southeast Tennessee and in North Georgia, there is a persistence of the belief that there was great fraud in the 2020 election, despite, for example, uh, the Virginia elections statewide going the, the direction of Republicans. How do we make headway amongst our conservative friends uh, in regaining their trust in this very core institution in uh, a democratic society? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very large challenge because it's not as simple as there was a, a murkiness that some you know, viewed as being leading to one outcome. I mean, there were people making a lot of money and making political names for themselves off of encouraging and repeating this. And, and frankly, doing it in an incredibly destructive way to the Republican Party. I, I firmly believe we would, the Republicans would be in the majority in the Senate if it hadn't been for the voter suppression efforts of the Stop the Steal movement. There is no better way to make sure that your voters don't vote than to tell them that their vote doesn't matter. Like that is just profoundly stupid and, and suicidal and self-destructive. Now, the thing that also really frustrates me is how insane that argument, those, some of those proponents get when they start talking about Italian military satellites, when they start talking about bamboo ballots from China, you know, like when they're going off the deep end on, you know, here's my algorithmic complicated, but also completely lacking any semblance of grounding in reality or how computers work explanation for why Dominion voting machines toss this election and, and switched votes and all this other stuff. When they go off on that end, it's really easy for them, the Democrats, to just say all of your concerns are unfounded and crazy. When the reality is there were a lot of pandemic-related modifications that were said to be temporary changes that are now presumed to be the way that we should operate. And, and so on, on both sides, there is a massive amount of misinformation. Now, the misinformation is crazier and zanier on the Republican side. And it's more, how can we cast our opponents in the most devious light possible? That really makes it hard to have honest discussions about what should our expectations be about ballot drop boxes? What should our expectations be in terms of you know, safeguards and checks when it comes to absentee voting? How should we be approaching keeping voter rules updated? We had a situation in Michigan where the Secretary of State use state funding in order to send out absentee ballot applications. These absentee ballot applications are something you could have printed off on the internet, right? There was no actual security thing there. But because they used a massively out of date and a massively dirty voter roll, if I'm sitting at home and all of a sudden I get letterhead from the secretary of state, you know, not just to me, not just to my spouse, not just to maybe adult children who live in the house, but addressed to people who had moved you know, many years prior, addressed to people who had died, uh, addressed to maybe adult children who you know, are, are now out of the house and had lived out of state. When, when that is what you were seeing at home, and it's a very small line to draw or very small confusion between an absentee ballot application and an absentee ballot. And it's coming from the Secretary of State. And you say, the Secretary of State doesn't even know this person's dead. The Secretary of State doesn't even know these people don't live here. Like that also massively undermines confidence. I don't think that changed the outcome of the election in one iota, you know, but that also gives credence that that becomes the smoke that some can use to allege fire. 
And so the, 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 the whole conversation around elections is just so toxic that, you know, we need to actually be talking from a shared set of facts and also a, a shared set of understandings of what is the responsibility at the federal level and what is the responsibility at the state level, right? Tenth Amendment, founders put it in there for a reason. But again, this federalization of every issue makes this perception that if, if you know, 2016 you know, was the flight 93 election, as Michael Anton said, um, you know, the Democrats are also saying, you know, voting rights is our, our flight 93 moment. If we don't you know, have a federal set of standards, despite the fact that this is supposed to be a, a state level issue, um, then we're going to lose this country forever. I mean, it's it just it's creating a sense of catastrophizing that then gets completely removed from what the actual facts of the matter are and takes it from a realm of policy discussions where we can we can agree, we can disagree, we can probably find some areas of common ground, but it takes it from that to this side is evil. They're trying to destroy the country. We're trying to save it. We'll be right back. As you know, Swamp Stories is sponsored by Issue One, the leading cross-partisan political reform group in Washington, D.C. Well, I'm excited to tell you that Issue One has just launched its brand new and improved website. It should be your go-to resource for hard-hitting, nonpartisan information about some of the biggest political reform issues of the day. From groundbreaking reports and research to some of the organization's most exciting projects, like our work to protect our elections, the new Issue 1 website is easy to navigate, organized by the topics you care about, and filled with great solutions for how we can fix our broken political system. Check it out at issue1.org. All right, let's get back to it. So coming out of your first year in Congress, of all first years to serve in Congress, is a pretty destabilized moment in conservatism. I think the last several years were disorienting for those of us who've been around conservative policy for a long time. With that in mind, how do you, when you're back in Michigan, how do you talk to fellow Republicans? I'm sure they have some election reform questions, but how do you talk to them about the future of conservatism and the future of the party? I say it's up for us to decide. I mean, I think one of the more dangerous trends is the complete unmooring from any sense of underlying ideology, the belief that might makes right, that pursuing a strategy of limited government is, you know, the loser path and the weak path. Instead, you know, we should try to seize the reins of government control and wield it against the people we perceive as wielding it against us today. Um, and, and honestly, I think that's a game that you you lose just by playing. You know, the, the centralization and federalization and, and growth of the federal government is, I believe, a, a threat to the survival of our constitutional order because of the ways in which it has destroyed the feeling writ large that we can redress our grievances within the system, that the system has and holds ways of, of changing and reforming. Because if the system is incapable of being changed from within, then the change comes from without. And that's where you get political violence. That's where you get threats and coercion as a way of doing business. Um, it, it is a very dark path that we are you know, going down right now. So I'm deeply concerned 
on, on that. And again, the, the Democrats want, there's a lot of, there's a lot of political projection going on. There's a lot of people on, on either side that, you know, you know, accuse the other side of doing what they are doing. Exactly. Um, there's some weird psychological imbalance there, but, uh, you know, we need to have those honest conversations. And, and when I talk to conservatives, I say, you know, limited government, economic freedom, individual liberty, viewing the individual as sort of the core basis and that the foundational institution of our country is not the government, you know, it's the family. Like everything else should be geared towards supporting that and what is going to support it best. You know, a government that does only those things that no other entity can, a government that is held to a high standard and, and a belief that prosperity comes not from what the government gives you, but from a, a, a vibrant economic system that the government only provides guardrails for, but let's flourish in the most efficient way possible that ensures a degree of upward social mobility uh, and that doesn't you know, pick winners and losers. Despite the obviously heated rhetoric and the perception of division in Congress, we've detailed as recently as uh, our last episode on Swamp Stories, examples of Republicans and Democrats coming to know each other and working on common ground issues or just problems that either have a regional or, or other connection to the passions of the members. You have traveled the world with your Democratic colleagues. You've demonstrated yourself as, in my opinion, as a person who's ideologically conservative and pragmatically willing to work across the aisle Talk about your desire. I suppose at this point, quite infamously, you you went to Afghanistan with a Democratic colleague. What what led you and a Democrat to go on such a what seemed to be dangerous but significant endeavor? To put it bluntly, the incompetence and lies of the Biden administration. Like I, I fundamentally do not root for a party to fail. You know, especially when that party is in a governing position. You know, and and I I try very hard mostly quietly, mostly, you know, behind the scenes in private conversations to say, how, how can I help make this, like fix this problem? I mean, the uh, border is a great example. Like I would vastly prefer that there not be, that that be depoliticized and we actually fix the problem because both parties love to keep problems alive because they can stand more to benefit from attacking the other side than taking credit for the solutions. That's not my my reflex. That's not my instinct. I don't have you know an appetite for political stunts. But when the issue is a desire to move past something, to forget about it, to focus on domestic priorities rather than addressing large issues such as Afghanistan, wanting to just leave it behind in the rear view, I'm not going to let that get left behind, especially when that has a real true human cost and, and real enduring uh, geostrategic cost. Go Do ahead. you sense that there's an opportunity among our fellow conservatives to partner across party lines in order to address some of the confusion that emanated from January 6th? I mean, the, the Electoral Count Act, we did an entire episode on mm -hmm. the need to update it. It seems like there's a, a pretty bulletproof case uh, from either a conservative or a liberal standpoint that we would be better served to clarify what that antiquated law means. Do you think an opportunity exists uh, on, on a significant but, but acute uh, issue like that to work across party lines for positive reform? I, I do, um, because I think the and this was one of the arguments that I was making to uh, my colleagues internally 
is we are basically setting the precedent for, you know, the Democrats down the line, if they have a majority in the House and in the Senate to throw out states that they, whatever we are alleging in terms of voter fraud, they're going to make the complete the same flip side of the coin argument on voter suppression. And so we are going to do a fantastic job of not only, and I was saying this, we are going to lose today, like just get that right. Like setting aside the merits, setting aside the constitutional impact politically, this is dumb. This is not going to work, but it will be, we're going to lose today. And we are laying the groundwork for us to lose in the future. Now it's important to note that on January or ahead of January 6th, a lot, what was being argued internally by and large was not that there was voter fraud. What was being argued is that there were non-legislative modifications to electoral processes at the state level, and that violated the time, place, and manner clause of the Constitution. And even though the Electoral Count Act of 1887 specifically, you know, and in, in addition to more contemporaneous um, court rulings, like in Wisconsin, that, that precluded objections because of non-legislative modifications, that that Electoral Count Act had never been challenged or what was a kind of poorly written, but had never been constitutionally challenged and thus constitutionally upheld. So there was murkiness around its constitutionality. Now, that is not what the people outside on January 6th were saying. That's not what they thought. But that was the sort of fig leaf argument internally. And I think it's important to offer that clarification. In my view, anything we can do to reduce institutional accelerationism will be a positive. Because every single incentive is leading to maximizing, you know, the pursuit of power in ways that I think are, are bad for the country uh, and, and realistically even bad for the party that's doing it. But if you have a zero sum mentality of our politics and of our country, uh, you will maximize. And, and even if you stand to lose, if the other side loses more, you know, that's a net gain for you. Uh, and I think, again, that's a destructive mentality, uh, but it's an easy one to grasp onto. Congressman Meyer, thanks for your time, for your uh, unusual brand of leadership in today's current political environment. But most of all, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Weston. It was a pleasure. On the next episode of Swamp Stories, we will revisit one of the swampiest bipartisan traditions in Washington, the use and abuse of leadership PACs as corporate-backed slush funds. New research has exposed even more about how leadership PAC money is being used in our nation's capital. Thanks for listening to Swamp Stories, presented by Issue One, the country's leading political reform organization that unites Republicans, Democrats, and independents to fix our broken political system. Please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. Even better, rate and review it on iTunes to help us reach more listeners. You can find out more at swampstories.org. I'm your host, Weston Wong. A special thank you to executive producer Ethan Rome, senior producer Evan Ottenfield, producer Sidney Richards, and editor Parker Tant from ParkerPodcasting.com. Swamp Stories was recorded in Tennessee, edited in Texas, and can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.